And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow Americans, welcome back to another episode of the Inspired Service Podcast. I'm Noah Scheinbaum, and I'm joined today by the scientist in charge of the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory for the U.S. Geological Survey, Ms. Christina Tina Neal. Tina, we're thrilled to have you with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Noah. So, Tina, I'm going to spend a minute here just talking a bit about your background because it's fascinating. You've been working for the U.S. Geological Survey on various aspects of volcanology, eruption response, and hazard mitigation since 1983. You've been all over the world. You've worked in Hawaii, in Alaska, in Washington, D.C., and then as the first Geological Survey Advisor to the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, or OFTA, with the U.S. Agency for International Development. So before we go any further, what attracted you to geology? Sure. Well, I have a a story that's probably familiar to to many, and that is I I was interested in science and nature and the outdoors as a child, um, growing up in, in somewhat rural Connecticut. And I was a child of the space age, uh, growing up when NASA was sending men in orbit around the Earth and later to the moon. And I was fascinated from an early age with space travel, and as many children do, vowed to become an astronaut someday. I took that interest and, and that dream into high school and college and planned to follow medicine potentially into the astronaut corps. And I, by chance, went to a lecture one night on the geology of Mars given by a professor at Brown University named Tim Much. And I was just overwhelmed with the epiphany that people actually did this kind of science where you looked at the solid surface planets and tried to understand what processes were responsible for the evolution of planets and that sort of thing. So I went to see him and uh, thus began my, my relationship with geology as a science. And I then felt I would pursue that route into the space field. And then you all remember what happened in 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted. I had been looking at volcanic features on the moon and Mars as part of my undergraduate work study with the geology department. But when Mount St. Helens erupted, I I suddenly, like many people, became captivated with volcanoes on our own planet. And I was fortunate enough, graduate school, to be allied with a project that took me to Mount St. Helens in 1982, where I met many of the U.S. Geological Survey scientists working at the Cascade Volcano Observatory. Uh, and thus began my relationship with USGS. So it was a series of, in some cases, very lucky timing, but long-term, my interest in the natural world. Uh, Volcanology has just been a a fabulous career for me. I was fortunate to come to Hawaii in the early 80s at the start of the Pu'u'o'o eruption, which, as folks know, ended after 35 years just last year. And my time with USGS and working on volcanoes uh, in the United States and, and elsewhere has just been tremendous. I should mention last year was a was was a pretty big year for you all. And in fact, Tina and her team are nominated for one of the Samuel Heyman Service to America Award medals through the Partnership for Public Service, or the SAMIs, for the work that they did in mitigating what was a potential disaster with the eruption of the Kilauea volcano. We're going to come back to all that. We're going to go into depth. What really happens in a volcano observatory? 
for most of us who have never stepped foot inside one, it's a fascinating idea. Do you just watch the volcano all day? Yeah, good question. So the word observatory often invokes the notion of, of people sitting in a, a big domed building looking at the stars or looking, peering at the volcano through a telescope. And and we do some of that, but that's by and large not the bulk of what happens. At, at volcano observatories worldwide now, uh, you, you have a team of scientists from different expertise with seismology and geodesy and geochemistry and geology. And uh, we spend a lot of our time actually now looking at data coming across our computer screens, data from monitoring networks that are out in the field on the volcano sending seismic and geodetic and camera and gas information back to us 24-7. So there's a lot of data analysis that goes on in an observatory, but we also still spend a tremendous amount of time out in the field on the volcano. So we must go to the volcano to install instruments, to maintain and fix them, uh, to observe what is happening at the volcano. And that can be literally standing on the rim, peering down into a crater which we certainly do a lot of here at Kilauea, nothing replaces the power of the human eyeball to see and interpret process. So that will always be part of what volcano observatory scientists do. But we do increasingly work remotely using technology as it changes and becomes miniaturized and of course more efficient. So it's this nexus of field observation and data collection, sampling, looking at at digital data on computer screens. And then very importantly, it's the talking and the cross pollination of scientists from all these different disciplines, trying to, to create a cohesive picture of what the volcano is doing, what it's doing now, what it might be doing in the future. That's a really interesting point. And I'm, I'm drawn to this idea of observation, bringing together the different pieces of information or the different sources of data to make sense of what's going on. In the past couple episodes of Inspired Service, we've talked to individuals working in the healthcare world and, and with electronic medical records and the importance of getting kind of all of the different types of data to the people who can use it at the point of care. And I'm struck by this, the similarity with what you're talking about, which is knowing kind of your patient or the volcano, bringing together the different experts and the different people who can contribute to an understanding of what may be happening. Can you talk to us a little bit about the composition of your team and the different skill sets that are needed to monitor and to act on early warning systems with respect sure. to volcanoes? Well, the medical analogy is, is a good one, and we'll get back to that. But for instance, right now at, at the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, we have staff who come from geophysical training backgrounds. So these are people who are experts in seismology or earthquakes experts in geodesy or the ground deformation part of, of earth science, experts in geochemistry and petrology who understand rock chemistry and what that tells us about the plumbing and source of magmas that feed volcanoes, experts in physical volcanology. These are people with quantitative uh, approaches to understanding and modeling processes and including hazardous processes. We also have a very strong and growing contingent of IT specialists, uh, computer scientists, people who are experts in data visualization and data processing. And as you can imagine, the high-tech nature of our work really requires that we have some highly skilled electronics technici electronic technicians and basically field engineers who can build and install and maintain instruments and then work on the telecommunications component, which is also increasingly important. As we learned last year, we have to build a robust infrastructure that can withstand uh, all sorts of natural disasters and, and have redundant pathways so that 
as last year when we had to abandon our observatory, we were able to set up a new observatory quickly because uh, our IT and field engineering folks were, were clever and had thought ahead about how we would do this. So it, it does take a wide variety of skill sets in, in science and engineering. Remote sensing, satellite technology is increasingly important. I'm trying to think if I've forgotten any. Uh, mathematics, modeling. Another really important skill set, which uh, we tend to forget because it's not specifically science, but it's the aspect of communication. So a big part of the job of USGS volcano observatories is not only tracking and analyzing and understanding volcanic behavior, but then assessing the hazards, both current and future, and communicating that information to the public, for sure, but also, very importantly, our emergency management partners. So this would be in the case of Hawaii, the Hawaii County Civil Defense, and the State Emergency Management Agency. And other events that are much bigger, like last year, we also have to, of course, deal with FEMA and uh, other stakeholders. So I, I, I want to emphasize that the ability to distill what is happening in a volcano and the implications for people who have to actually go out and protect the public, do evacuations, plan for that sort of thing, um, that's a really key part of volcano observatory work. And it's not something that most scientists traditionally get training in, but some are very good at it, and we, we certainly develop a lot of practice when you go through a lot of eruptions. Let's talk about last year. So in 2018, Kilauea, which is only, it's one of many active volcanoes on the island of Hawaii, erupted for more than 100 days. And it destroyed more than 700 homes and forced the relocation of many residents, but there were no fatalities. How were you guys able to pull that off? Well, we collectively should all be proud of that fact. It was a dangerous event. It came on fairly rapidly, and it's a testimony to uh, the information that the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory provided, but also to the effectiveness of the emergency response community and, and the citizens that no one was, was killed. We were able to pull it off. I'll just speak from the HVO perspective because we have long had monitoring stations on the volcano and uh, enough of them that we were able to see the signs that magma was intruding within the lower east rift zone of Kilauea and heading towards the surface in a residential area, Leilani Estates, where we eventually had an outbreak of lava that, as you say, went on for more than 100 days. So because of our instrumental monitoring, we were able to pinpoint the exact areas that were, were immediately at risk, let, information, let that information be known to civil defense and the public in a timely manner, and people could be prepared for evacuation. I will say the volcano cooperated in that it gave us several days of warning. Earthquakes were felt, the ground was cracking, so it was fairly obvious to people in the danger zone that something was coming. Uh, that said, even a few days of notice is very short for folks to be ready to move. And we're trying to use that experience of last year to encourage islanders elsewhere on, on the island of Hawaii, uh, perhaps on Mauna Loa volcano, to, to be ready to move quickly should that volcano show uh, signs of imminent activity. But I, I have to also point out that the behavior of last year, even though it was an epic eruption and, and the most significant event in more than 200 years here at Kilauea, it, it fits with the long-term history of the volcano. And, and so in our discussions with the, with the community and emergency managers about what Kilauea could do, uh, this really wasn't terribly surprising. Uh, we were not focused on the Lower East Drift Zone of Kilauea until last spring, 
because we hadn't seen any unequivocal signs of potential unrest. But we knew that this was possible at this volcano. And in fact, the long-term hazard map and information that we've been disseminating to the world for decades uh, showed that that portion of the lower east drip zone was a high likelihood place for, for an outbreak. So the, it behaved as the long-term behavior and our understanding of the volcano would have suggested. I will also say that the ongoing uh, communication that was established once the eruption began, I think contributed to the management of the response and the minimization of, of impacts and injuries. We had a scientist stationed essentially 24 seven at the Civil Defense Command Center here in Hilo. And so information flow from the field to the decision makers, I think was about as efficient as it could be. And I know that that helped in uh, having the officials be able to properly move people out of harm's way. That's not to say we, we didn't have challenges and things at times didn't go smoothly. No crisis response is perfect. And we've done a series of after action discussions with partners to try to learn from what happened last year so that the next time we're in a situation like this, we, we all do even better. Tina, you mentioned that the volcano was fairly cooperative, but I want to ask you about the people. Because it strikes me that every time there's a, a hurricane or some sort of natural disaster, inevitably there's a cable news correspondent on the street with the umbrella flying up in the air, and they interview somebody who says, I'm not leaving, I'm staying. Did you face that kind of resistance, or to put a broader point on it, the skepticism of scientists or the skepticism of the public servants on behalf of civilians that frustrated the response or made it more difficult? How did people react to you? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking not from absolute direct experience here because I spent very little time actually out there on the ground in the community that was being so dramatically affected. I, I was back at headquarters, but my geology staff who were out there 24-7 interacted with residents many, many times, often. And I think what I have heard largely is that the analysis and information shared by USGS HVO scientists was, was listened to, was appreciated, and was well-respected. And that is a testimony to, I think, many, many decades of, of HVO being a very important, truthful, and participatory agency within the community here in Hawaii. You have to re realize that HVO goes back to 1912 here on, in, on Hawaii Island, and Scientists have been engaged with the community and talking about the volcano and eruptions and being witness and participant to destruction of homes and infrastructure for a long, long time. So we're really part of the fabric of the community. And I think for that, HVO's word is, is well regarded. It's hard for most people to understand, I think, unless you've been through a disaster like this, what it's like to leave your home, especially if you have to leave quickly and you leave behind precious things including animals, perhaps, if you didn't have time to deal with them. So it's a tremendously stressful environment. And uh, I'm not surprised if there were occasional conflicts or, or tensions about returning during the event. But in the end, I think emergency services and, and the officials who were managing the situation did the best that they could to, to keep people safe. Yeah, it brings us to kind of an important discussion about a higher level idea, which is this relationship between science and good public policy. And this is one area where, you know, the system seems to have worked as it should, where scientists received certain signals, drew certain conclusions, 
relayed that information to the policymakers and the people who had to go execute those, those evacuations or, or do whatever is needed to keep the public safe. It doesn't always work like that. Uh, and I think we could, many of our listeners, I'm sure we both could think of a number of issues where the, the information flow doesn't exactly you know, go off without a hitch between scientists and policymakers. What should the relationship be between scientists and policymakers? And what should we be doing to realize that kind of relationship again? Well, I think first and foremost, we need to understand that, that scientists are human beings, for one hand, and at the same time, scientists are, are dedicated to finding the truth and being very clear about the limitations of knowledge, but also wanting all of the facts and all of the uh, proper context to be brought to decisions. I, I think in this particular case, we, we saw a good demonstration, as you just described, of experienced scientists bringing all of their expertise and data to bear to provide information to decision makers who then were able to execute their vision of how to keep people safe. I think an important part of maintaining that as a healthy uh, process within the public sector and, and within our community broadly is for scientists to always be willing to explain the limitations and the uncertainties. This, I believe, would, would give the public even more confidence that we are being honest and, and transparent. I worry that there's a perception that scientists think they know everything. And uh, when a scientist does have that attitude, I get very wary because that's not honest. A, a good example last year regarded both the Lower East Rift Zone lava eruption and then the summit collapse uh, that was going on simultaneously. Of course, everybody wanted to know how long is this going to go on? How, how, how many days and months am I going to have to deal with this? And how big and how bad is it going to get? That was a big challenge for our volcanologists to put some boundaries on those questions and try to be helpful. And probably one of the greatest sources of frustration for me and for some of my colleagues was, was the, the degree to which we were uncertain about how to answer those things. We, we did our best to invoke our understanding of the long-term behavior and past precedent of this volcano, to uh, interpret the monitoring data as best we could to give us signs of what, what the future might hold. But there still was a range of possible outcomes that we had to describe and try to give our best assessment of the most likely scenario. And I, I struggled mightily, and I know my colleagues did as well, to try to be as clear as possible about those scenarios. I, I worry that it's easy to confuse the public when you're talking about an uncertain situation and what you don't want to have people conclude is, oh, these people don't know anything because then they're going to not listen at all. When in fact, we know a lot, but we have to be honest about uncertainty and the potential range of outcomes. So it's a very delicate communication task there to uh, provide helpful information. And I think I, I lost more sleep over, over that process last summer than, than anything else. To me, it's really important that our culture allow science to flourish, allow science to progress and stumble and make progress and, and revise uh, models and understanding um, in order to continue to inform the world properly. And people need to realize that science changes. Just because we have a model today does not mean it's not going to change into the future. But at any one time, I do have strong confidence that scientists bring the best to bear on, on their assessment of situations. 
So what I'm hearing from you is almost a, a compact or an understanding between scientists and, and the people they seek to inform. It's on, on, the, on the side of science, it's being honest about uncertainty, the degree of it, when it exists, and, and the nature of that uncertainty. And on the flip side, it's some tolerance and some forgiveness on behalf of the people, allowing science to flourish, progress, and make mistakes or change its understanding, as it has throughout history, without expecting scientists to know everything at a given moment. Maybe that's the, the kind of the model for successful progress in the, in the domain going forward. Tina, if I can, I, I'd like to talk a little bit more about what prepared you to be successful in that position. Sure. I'm really not sure anyone could have been ready for last summer. But I was fortunate enough a few years into my time in Alaska to be allowed to return to Washington and work, as you say, as the geoscience advisor to the U.S. Agency for International Development's Office of U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance. And this position grew out of a long-term relationship between USAID and USGS in supporting the Volcano Disaster Assistance Program. And this is a, a very successful joint program of USAID and USGS, whereby a, a team of volcano specialists, most headquartered at the Volcano Observatory now at the Cascades, in the Cascades, and they are the international sort of crisis response team. Uh, this grew out of a, 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 an eruption tragedy in 1985 uh, at Malvado del Ruiz in Colombia, when it was uh, realized here in the U.S. that U.S. science volcano expertise could be helpful around the world in, in uh, augmenting various countries' internal capacities to deal with these volcanic disasters, because many countries with volcanoes and high risk um, did not have very well-developed observing and response capacities. So USAID co-funded this, and through the years, it's grown remarkably and, and been part of dozens of very critical, successful responses to volcanic crises around the world. Because of that success, I think USAID thought, hey, USGS is a great resource for lots of geohazard capacity building around the world, and therefore, let's bring a USGS geohazard specialist into the fold, and, and they can help advise and develop programs to deal with all sorts of hazards beyond volcanoes, earthquakes, landslides, floods, um, tsunamis, things, things of those nature. So I was the first person in that position, and uh, it was a wonderful honor and a great chance to sort of mold the track. I spent two years there and was followed by several other folks. Uh, currently, we have a long-serving person there, Gary Mayberry, and they, the position was powerful in that it was part of a technical group at OFDA, specialists from all sorts of, re of realms, uh, public health, uh, water and sanitation, housing and urban development, anthropology, a whole series of specialists where we would try to develop these sort of cohesive and multifaceted hazard mitigation programs overseas and, and try to get at the root problems of, of increasing risk in some of these countries and not just focus on crisis response and disaster response. At the same time, when there was a big event overseas, this group would often look for opportunities to utilize the tremendous flow of disaster funds to uh, build in resilience into these communities. So uh, as a story of one of my, my favorite work assignments in that job, I was able to facilitate some funding to address these carbon dioxide saturated volcanic lakes in the, in the country of Cameroon in Africa. Uh, you may know the story that in the mid eighties, there were two sudden overturning events of these lakes, uh, Lake Neos and Lake Manum that ended in, that killed many people in the valleys as 
these carbon dioxide clouds erupted and then flowed down the valleys to asphyxiate sleeping villagers. A group of French and US and Japanese scientists came up with a novel idea to address the actual reduction of the, of the hazard. This is a very rare thing in hazard mitigation where you can actually do away with the hazard or at least minimize it. Typically, you're trying to manage the risk and reduce exposure. But in this case, this group of scientists with some OFDA funding um, put in these large PVC pipes into the middle of the lakes and basically began this fountaining process so that the carbon dioxide in the saturated lake bottom water could be expelled in this passive fountaining and basically reduce the concentrations to safe levels. This project is still ongoing and has uh, not completely eliminated, but vastly reduced the risk from a carbon dioxide event. So that was a, just a wonderful example of how U.S. funds and technology and expertise, along with French and Japanese partners, could address making people safe uh, in, a, in a fellow country across the planet. So I think my off the time gave me some experience in thinking broadly and multi, in a multidisciplinary fashion about hazard and risk and how science can be brought to bear to address living safely on this, this dangerous planet with so many natural hazards. I think the other experiences that, that primed me to be able to respond last year were, were just my decades of work at both the Hawaiian and the Alaska Volcano Observatory responding to eruptions. Um, I was here for the Pu'uo'o event in the mid 80s and some of the beginning of the disruption of the Kalapana community in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. And then in Alaska, I responded to you know, dozens of explosive eruptions, including some that produced dangerous ash clouds uh, that threatened aircraft and produced ash fall on populated areas. And even though the, with the exception of the danger to aircraft, the, the acute nature of eruptions in Alaska, they, they, unlike here, they did not threaten people on the ground immediately there was a crisis response component where we had to monitor situations, issue information, rapidly assimilate and analyze and uh, interpret information and then talk to emergency managers and the public. So I have had a lot of practice with that. I also cannot emphasize how important it was to have such a phenomenal team here at HVO. The scientists have been working here for some, in some cases only months, but in some cases decades. And the ex level of expertise and commitment and dedication and energy last summer to respond 24-7 to that eruption that went on for more than three months was, was really amazing. We couldn't have done it without the people. And we also brought in dozens of uh, volcanologists from other observatories, universities, including the University of Hawaii. Uh, so it was a huge team effort. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear that. Um, and really appreciate the way that, that, you, that you've articulated that. Part of what strikes me, Tina, in hearing about your work is the, the time from kind of observation to idea to action to impact is really tight. It's a really tight loop and, and your ability to impact the way things happen on the ground. I'm curious, as you look you know, over your career now and seeing the next generation of scientists and, and folks come up, is, is the work having the kind of attractive effect that you think it ought to? Are we, are, is the next crop of scientists coming in at the rate you'd expect? Uh, do you think the future is in good hands right now? I am optimistic. I, we have a number of early career people here who've joined the HVO staff in the last couple of years who are super smart and driven and passionate and well prepared to carry on this job into the next few decades. And 
and whenever we have a, a, a vacancy, the uh, number of applications is high and, and the quality is, is, is very good. So I do think that in the small niche of volcanology, we are, are mostly well served. I think the one deficit that I am hearing articulated by some of my senior colleagues is that as the science has become more quantitative, more analytical, more specialized, we may be losing some of the generalist field-focused skill sets. And by that, I mean more of the traditional geologists who walk around on the terrain for years and look at every rock and, and every section and, and understand the deep time history of volcanoes. Uh, so I think that may be the one area of slight concern, but overall I am, I am really heartened. My only concern really is that there are not enough jobs for these very talented people coming in. So I'm, I'm quite heartened. You know, two points I want to go back to when, in your intro to this question are that, yes, we work in crisis mode a lot, and that condensed time scale of data collection, observation, analysis, interpretation, and communication is very pressured. But our scientists also have to be able to work at the completely other time scale, and that is some of our scientists are engaged in research that goes on for years, if not decades, of careful work and repeating that work and developing hypotheses and revising them. And so from that work comes our long-term view of how these volcanoes work, their history, their future, the, the big picture of their hazards. And this is the information that we then take to people like community planners and land use planners and um, folks who want to think synoptically and strategically about how to live in volcanic terrains. So I guess my point is that our scientists need to be nimble you need to be able to look in the, for the long view and create tools that allow society to think about living with these hazards over generations and societal timeframes. And then you also have to be able to do this crisis response. The word nimble was sort of our operational word last summer. And, and I think that carries through to what any observatory does around the planet. That is a very, very, very fair and very important reminder that it's it's kind of at both ends of the time scale there. So thank you for uh, that point. So Tina, I want to just quickly run through a couple of lightning round questions with you. Basically, we'll ask the question, just ask you to share a few words or the first few things that come to mind. And so our first question is going to be, what does service mean to you? Service to me means giving of your time, your expertise, and, and your energy to benefit others. And what's been the highlight of your time in public service? I, I am so lucky to have a very long list. It's hard to choose just one, Noah. I would have to say that for me, highlights include the, the very first time I saw molten lava up close and personal here in Hawaii, diving to the Pacific Ocean floor in the Alvin in the mid-80s and seeing submarine lavas out the porthole and those amazing aha moments in science, such as in Alaska when my colleague Game and I discovered evidence that the Antiochchak caldera had produced a catastrophic flood more than a thousand years ago. And of course, I, I have to mention that last summer, leading the amazing HVO team and working with all our partners during the, the epic events here at Kilauea was another highlight. On the flip side of that, can you think of a time when it's been a real struggle to be in public service when it's been hard for you to keep going, when maybe enthusiasm has waned? Well, I think many people in public service uh, go through a low point when there are challenges with budget and the political situation that seem to whiplash our agencies around. We've had a few of those in the last few decades, uh, but we always get through. And I think 
last summer is also a low light for me in that witnessing the great loss by our community and also the personal toll that the eruption stress took on my colleagues. Uh, those, were, those were also tough times. And finally, what helps you keep going? What motivates you to stay where you are as opposed to leaving the public domain? What keeps me going includes my, my amazing colleagues, my, my mentors throughout my career, and, and all of the terrific people I've had the great opportunity to meet around the planet. Uh, also, having the opportunity and the luxury of just contemplating this beautiful natural world and trying to better understand it through science. And I guess finally, knowing that what we do at the USGS and the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory helps make the world a safer place. All those things keep me going. Tina, so grateful for you taking the time to be here with us today and to share a little bit about your story, your background, your your motivations. And before we say farewell, uh, any final words you'd like to leave with our listeners today? I would like to say that the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory and the U.S. Geological Survey, who have both given me wonderful career experiences, uh, I think do represent some of the best in, in public service. We have so many dedicated scientists and support personnel, administrative professionals who are here because they love what they do and they want to make the world a better place. And I, I hope that that message comes through loud and clear in, in the work that we do on behalf of the United States. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Tina, for, for taking the time to speak with us today and also for all that, that you've done and that you continue to do on behalf of the country. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Noah. For more episodes of the Inspired Service Podcast, please visit us at www.inspiredservice.org and subscribe on iTunes.